Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Things We Do For Love with me, Izzy Sutty, the creator and the owner of the format. Um, I don't think I should say that. I sound like I've gone mad. Right, here we go. Here we go. Hello and welcome to The Things We Do For Love. I'm Izzy Sutty um, and this week I am chatting to the lovely, the brilliant, the splendid, one of the best actors I've ever come across, Patterson Joseph, who... Many of you will know as Johnson from Peep Show, and that is indeed how I first met him. But he has done such a wide variety of acting stuff and rights. He's been in the RSC, so many productions for the RSC. He's done lots and lots of telly. He's done a lot of other theatre, so much that his Wikipedia is just staggering. Um, He was even in The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, my God, take me to the beach and he wrote and performed a solo show called Sancho, an act of remembrance, which was about the life of Ignatius Sancho. And that ran in lots of different venues and locations. And he's just brilliant. I loved this chat. It was very kind of vulnerable for both of us, I guess. And I loved how honest he was. He made me be more honest. And um, we had a few technical issues. This was recorded over Zoom, but I don't think you'll notice because what he was saying was so brilliant. So please sit back and enjoy The Things We Do For Love with Patterson Joseph. Welcome to The Things We Do For Love. The Things We Do For Love. The things we do for love. This week I'm joined by... Addison Joseph. His favourite non-alcoholic drink is... Elderflower cordial. Oh, yes. Uh, his favourite thing about snow is... It's crunchiness. Yes. I thought you were just going to say it. Like, my favourite thing about snow is snow. That's um, welcome to the things we do for love it's the podcast about the things we do for love it might be the time you read war and peace after seeing it on their bookshelf only to discover that just like you they only have it on their bookshelf for show or it might be the time you started learning his language only to discover that it was really really hard um, have you read anything uh, i sort of did yeah i was married for 20 years to a french woman and i didn't speak any french when we met and i speak french now so I suppose, yes, I did that for love. 
also to stop my son insulting me because he's bilingual and every time I open my mouth he looked at me like oh my gosh so disappointed in my father that's what I'm worried because so my partner's Welsh it's slightly different isn't it but um, I did learn it with gusto at the beginning and now we've got two kids and he teaches them Welsh I don't want their Welsh to be better than mine yeah it's going to be what happens is because we read about it a lot before we had Clem is that kids choose so they will tend to choose the majority language so they don't stand out and your job really is to try to force them <laughs> so it's one pair of one language is the best scheme I see what you mean so they'd always speak English with you always, always speak French English with, with me and always yeah. French with her until he was about three and a half four and then he knew how to code swap when we were with his grandparents. He didn't speak any English, though he didn't like it. He understood eventually that he had to do it. So it has to be that one of you speaks Welsh all the time without dropping, which is the harder thing. And yeah. speaks English, but doesn't swap. Because when you do that, then their brains go, I could use either words. So I'm going to choose to use the majority. I see. So sometimes they have to make the harder choice, basically. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But they speak that Ellis will say something to them in Welsh and then they'll reply in English. Yeah, we sometimes speak this kind of pidgin Welsh in the house, I suppose, where we'll call bread bara. Mm-hmm. I always call bread bara now and I sometimes call milk llath, which is milk. Be odd if it wasn't milk, if it meant jam or something. And so Betty will sometimes say llath, but she'll often say milk. And I think that's the problem. Because my Welsh isn't brilliant, I'll say a sentence that has some Welsh verbs in it, but they'll be wrong. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> The trick was meant to be, and it did work with Clem, like he would go, oh, Daddy, look at the loon. Yeah, my gosh, the moon is really beautiful tonight. So what you're doing is you're reinforcing that the word is fine, just not in that sentence. Yeah. You're not going, what are you talking about? Speak my language. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's (laughs) wrong. That's wrong. wrong. Yeah, saying it's wrong as well is really bad for them because they get real trauma about it. It's it's a proper thing. I grew up in a house where they spoke Creole. So Creole is a kind of French dialect that you speak on various different islands, and each island has a slightly different one. My parents happened to come from a place called St. Lucia, and when they came to England, they spoke Creole in the house until I was three. And I didn't know till I was 30 that they'd done this. But I remember running about after my mum saying, how do you say book in Creole? How do you say scissors in Creole? Because I'd forgotten it already. This is preschool. And then making a mistake at school, I've written about it before, where I've gone, um, oh, what did you have for l- Sunday lunch? Or we had rice and peas, which they all found was hilarious. They were mostly Irish kids. It's like early 60s. And then I said, oh, and then we had salad with lettuce, tomato and cucumber, like cucumber. Oh, and I didn't even yeah. know where cucumber had come out from. But it's a bilingual kids thing is that you've learned something in one language and now you've got to say it in another. And I never made that, I'd say, mistake again. And I had no words, really, of quail, apart from a few swear words a few orders to get out of the way before you get hit you know but do you think if you had to speak it now it'd probably be there wouldn't it it'd probably come back no it doesn't I mean my French is better than any of that so when I go to St Lucia which I do try to go a couple of times a year because my dad's still out there I will be so ashamed of myself and every now and then I'll hear something that I know is I can translate into French so I can get by but I don't speak any other language to my shame it's hard though it's I think when you're younger a, your brain is more supple, isn't it? So I think yeah. that's why kids can... Emptier is the word. Emptier, yes. <laughs> Less going on in there. And also kids don't worry about anything unless they're unlucky in a, you know, in a kind of regular everyday household. Hopefully they don't have the sense of responsibility in the same way that we do. So I guess they've got, I don't know, more of an ability to soak language up. I think so. And they're, and they're hungry. They're hungry for it. Yeah, they, they are communicate um, and they're curious. I remember always asking people to say things in their language 
which of course, when I think about it now, is ridiculous. Say I'm going to the shops in Spanish because some kid at school spoke Spanish and they were like, why would I say that? That sounds so stupid. I know, but the, the, it's when you ask someone to say something in their language, you can't think of a single thing you want them to say, can you? <laughs> it's right. always like... But how do you say there are elephants on the moon? Oh, yeah, exactly. It should be something like that. It's always like, I have tomatoes. Or something. <laughs> You're just panicking. Um, when you met your ex-wife, did you speak any French before that? Did you speak a kind of basic French from school or anything? No, really boring story. I went to a drama school before I went to Lambda, which is the London Academy. Yeah, I, yeah, I tried to get into Lambda. Did um, you? Yeah, I didn't even get a recall. So what year are we talking? That means about? you're twice as good as me. No, it? no, it means I need <laughs> twice the help as you. So I went. To <laughs> oh, what what was um, what year? Are we what year? Well, so ninety six. I auditioned for. It was rubbish at the that first time. time round. Was it, it? Was rubbish at that time? Yeah. Okay. You yeah. <laughs> The kids who came out that year, well, they would have been 1999, rubbish. None of them have done any work. Okay. So you're fine. Good, good. Yeah, but if they were all rubbish, wouldn't I have stood out? You might as well, you might have just lowered your standards. Yes, exactly. I would have wanted to fit in, wouldn't I? I couldn't have let my talent. Sorry. For the class of 99, I've just made that up. I'm yeah, sure you're, you're all probably all working. It's probably Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch's generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just thought that. Um, so, sorry, you went to drama school before you went to Lambda or? Yes, I, I was yeah. literally just going to say that one of the teachers there was French obsessed. He thought I should be mm. working for Peter Brook, who's a famous um, British yes. who works in France. And so he got He wrote me. a book called The Empty Space. Didn't That's you? exactly, yeah. 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 Positing the idea that theatre only needs one person in the audience, one person to walk across the stage, and that is theatre. The most boring play. I think you'd ever see. Well, there's plenty of that in Edinburgh, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show you this year. I'm going to walk from one side to the other in the Peter Brook homage. Only one person's come. It's my mum and she comes every day, but it's theatre, guys. And she complained about my walk. I mean, yeah. so she wasn't convinced. Yeah, she, I thought I was self-conscious. <laughs> we used to have this teacher, I went to Guildford School of Acting, and we used to have a Laban oh, yeah. teacher. Did you do Oh, yes, yeah, we did Laban for a while, yeah. So if anyone listening who doesn't know what Laban is, God, I can't believe you don't know what it is. No, I totally, <laughs> totally can believe if you don't know what it is. Um, yeah. I sort of used to describe it as like a kind of dance form, yes, I suppose, exactly. isn't it? It links it to emotion. So you have things yeah. like, which is the one I always remember, because I think that's what my acting mainly is, ringing. As in W-R-I-N-G-I-N-G. Yes. So when you're emoting, as they say, so not really believing it, but like you're trying to cry, I'm really sad. That's called ringing. <laughs> we didn't do ringing at GSA. So is ringing bad? Ringing is, is like, bad. Ringing yeah. is squeezing emotions out it's where there, there are none. So say you had to cry, like <laughs> when I did Shameless, I had to cry quite a lot and I wasn't used to doing a drama. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to cry. <laughs> Basically, my dad had died two years early, so I used to always think of, oh. of dad. But but I never knew whether that was bad or not. Like, maybe no, I should have been in character and think, OK, fine. That's called method. That's a Marlon Brando thing, which he took from the Russians. So even if you're thinking about a different thing from your character, it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't okay. matter. I always remember Joey from Friends doing the, oh, I can look like I'm thinking things and I'm not thinking anything except for big numbers. Oh, yes, he's doing and he yeah. demonstrated it so brilliantly that you felt slightly ashamed as an actor. But actually, that's all it took, just you <laughs> looking like you're thinking about something really incredible. Is he thinking of an equation or something? He does he's something adding like numbers together in his head. 243 divided by 74. I remember that. You see him not working it out, but not working it out is really interesting. I know. I think that's all it takes. And then you think, I could have just gone to drama school for a week and it would have been fine. It was just give me a list of the things you're meant to do to get work and the things you're meant to do to keep work. And that will be it. Make sure you're clean. Make sure you arrive on time. Learn all the lines. 
don't look into the camera. Except when you're doing peep show. Except peep show. Which, but, is- which people might expect us to talk about. We haven't talked about love yet, but that's because we've had such interesting conversations so far. But um, we don't have to talk about peep show. I mean, we, I'm sure you get asked about it a lot and so do I. I do, yeah. I'm yeah. very happy to talk well, about it. Well, me too. I mean, um, I, what I found weird, and you probably did as well, is that you have to do it down the camera and it's so counterintuitive at first, isn't it? Yeah, when we first did it, our major problem was just keeping glancing to the person speaking next to the camera. And then so people started hiding behind the camera. I don't yes. think we did it so much towards the because we got used to it but well you were in it much earlier than me yeah I did one episode yeah it's the strangest thing that's ever happened to me in that I sort of stumbled into it because it wasn't in that circuit I didn't know those guys I, you know I was brought in as a sort of outlier character but he was so strange that I think they got interested in him <laughs> well it's that thing where you can't imagine anyone else playing it well at I think all. that's true of all of us I think the casting yeah. was genius and the way the writers adapted to what we were bringing was so fast. Yeah. I've only really experienced it in America, I suppose, because they had a bit of a team of writers here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think everybody was perfectly. I can't imagine anybody in any of the roles. No, Big Sue's, like yeah. Superhands, anyone. No, you're absolutely right. Actually, describe it as one of the strangest things that's ever happened to you is quite a good. Yeah, because I, uh, I mean, yeah. I was. This is a little, I don't know, I'll get off that subject, but I was a little bit religious at the time. And Peep Show was so dirty was so full of filth. Yeah. All the ideas were awful. People were awful to each other. I hated Johnson as a person because he was so sort of anathema to my sensibilities at the time. I'm not a Christian anymore. And I look at Johnson and I think, well, he's just a flawed human being. But at the time, it's like, oh, God, he says such disgusting things. Sure. I never watched it. And then the fact that its momentum was so huge that 13 years later, we were still doing it, surprised me, definitely surprised my agent, who was sure they won't mind me saying vociferous about me not doing series four because they weren't paying you enough I was like I really don't care yeah it became like this very cool thing didn't it and I didn't understand what was necessarily really funny about it because I'd never done any real comedy I think I'd done a couple of episodes of Green Wing maybe by that point but that was very different and then you had these head cams on our heads so everything just felt very sort of technical and a bit weird yeah and yet when I see it back I think there was no other way they could have done it and I hope it's around for a long time because I think it was a very clever that sort of inner voice thing has just never been bettered, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it looks very easy when it's done well, doesn't it? And then you yeah. see it done badly and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. yeah, it wouldn't have worked in anyone else's head either, I don't think. I think they did a DVD extra where you went into Sophie's head and it just, it worked. But it, there's something about being the head of Mark and Jez because they're absolute polar opposites and their thoughts are so at odds with what they do outwardly that it yes. balances perfectly and reminds us of us you know yeah exactly if, everyone's if a mark or, or a jazz basically aren't they yeah if we had a sort of emotional Tourette's and we couldn't control our thinking yeah they think those thoughts and say the things that we would never dream of saying and yeah I don't think it's cruel like I've always had a little bit of a problem with the kind of theatre of cruelty you know the comedy of cruelty where we are laughing at people's foibles but in a way that feels a bit cruel whereas I for Peep Show because it's of its wit but also because you sort of are endeared to these losers yeah manage to do that balance of oh my god you're awful people but I can see why you're awful and I can see how you want to try to make it better but you just simply don't have the tools you know the emotional tools yeah and then you sort of nearly get them and it just goes wrong at the very last juncture <laughs> um have you found that the job of being an actor and I know you write as well and you that it interferes with relationships like I always felt like I put it first to be honest really until I had kids and now yeah same yeah I was obsessed 
And um, now on my own, I'm sort of still obsessed, but obsessed with two things now, writing and acting. So yeah. it's okay. And I can sort of get away with it. I don't live with anybody and it's easy enough. But if ever that does change, I understand that it has become everything for me. And I don't think that when I was married and was living it with my kid and my, my ex, that I was more obsessed with it. I think it just took up so much of my time because you spend, if you're doing it reasonably successfully, which is what you hope, you spend a lot of time reading scripts yeah. to see if you'll do an audition for it, preparing for auditions and then learning lines and rereading scripts, etc. So it's quite intensive and the hours are strange. So it's not a profession that I would ever advise anybody, oh, you can go into because, you know, you'll have a wonderful life full stop. There are sacrifices to be made in it. Yeah, I think that too. And I think even when you're, was your ex-wife in the same industry? No, no, she didn't do um, my job, but she was a translator when I first met her, but did end up working for two agents that I ended up dealing with, like my writing agent. So she understood the profession, but not from the inside, as it were. Because there have been times that I've been out with other performers, which I'm sure you probably have as well. Like, And I used to think, oh, I won't ever go out with another stand-up because male stand-ups used to have this, I think, undeserved in some cases, certainly Ellis's, I hope, <laughs> reputation of kind of being not that trustworthy because you're away a lot and it's a bit like touring, you know, you're kind of gigging all over. Well, don't you think that actors have that reputation that we're all a bit still vagabonds? And Yes, actors do as well. I think you're the same. We're all part of the circus, so we must be a bit... And kind of a bit like, oh, it was character research. Like, <laughs> you can, ex- you know... <laughs> Yeah, we were on tour, you know, yeah. I lost my bearings. So I was missing you so much that I had to just do this. It's actually a kind of compliment to you. Yeah, completely. I mean, being away is hard and you do go into a bubble with the people that you're working with. I yeah. don't mean that you're cheating on people. What I mean is you're, if you're doing something good, well, at least it feels good. That's all you can hope for, isn't it? While you're yeah. making it, you don't know what's going to happen in the edit or if it's theatre, you don't yeah, quite know, but... If it feels good, that's good. You feel like you're in a playful environment. Yeah. You're all focused on the same thing. It can be so exciting. Yes, um, yeah. And it can feel like you're back at school, can't it? And you're so embroiled in that world. Then someone rings from home or the doctor rings you or, and you're like, it's like you're being jostled out of this Bubble. Bubble is a really great term, isn't it, for it? Yeah. It, what happens in the bubble, not stays in the bubble, <laughs> often doesn't stay in the bubble. <laughs> what happens in the bubble is allowed in the bubble. Um, yeah. And it wouldn't be allowed anywhere else. Just behaviours and, you know, I did a long theatre tour. I wrote a book about it. In fact, it was so interesting. Yeah. It was Julius Caesar. It was for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I'd never worked, well, very rarely worked with a cast that was entirely black. And the funny thing about it is it's a sort of familial shorthand takes place and then if it's a long tour anyway all sorts of things break down like politeness yeah. <laughs> patience liking other people's acting yeah so it was a really horrible clash of being sort of tired and just sick of the sight of people which I I bravely wrote about and a lot of the actors in it so that's okay you can write that because that's the truth oh that's good I don't think you can stop that especially actually when the piece has been badly received Funnily yeah. enough, is he? Is that you sort of team up like like settlers in the old west? You know, get the wagon trains around, so everybody becomes more protective of each other. So sure. it all becomes a more homogenized group because of the battering that you're getting. Yeah, I know what you mean. When you feel like you're being attacked, I suppose yeah. you're like, well, we think it's good. Yeah, so- we worked on this really hard. We know what we're doing. They just don't understand. Yeah, defensive of each other and of your work. So I suppose that is another bubble. It's just hard to. 
it's hard and you should actually get into it. I think that's part of what it is to be a company. I, I would like to ask you, though, what, what's it like? Because I've done a one-man show and I, I'm going to do it again at the Lyric in Hammersmith next year. And it's an historical show. And I come out as myself and say why I've written it. And then on the show goes for about 70 minutes. And the first time I did it properly, I was at the Oxford Playhouse in Oxford and I had performed it. And I went downstairs and I bought, you know, champagne for a few people, like four or five bottles. It wasn't much. It was a small crew. And I sat there while they did notes upstairs. The saddest moment of my life was like, I've just done this show. The audience has really liked it. Here are the donuts and the champagne that I bought. And I'm sitting in the green room, you know, watching some, I think it's a documentary on people stealing cars or something. Right, yeah. Because it was about sort of 9.30 in the evening and Channel 5 was on. And I was like, this is the saddest post-show thing that's ever happened to me. And I literally thought, this: how do stand-ups do it? You're on your own. Yeah. If I'm in a company, it doesn't matter if the technical people are upstairs doing the notes. I'm talking to the friends. Oh, this is what happened. Do you remember that woman in the front row? Yes. What about the woman who died? What about that one who walked out? What about... But you don't have that. There's no feedback. No, I know. I think it is lonely. I think you get better at almost becoming more than one person for yourself. Like... I always feel it before I go on more than, and not so much with like a club gig where you're all together in the dressing room, you're all going to go on and do your 20 minutes, but I don't do those so much anymore. Mm. If you're doing an hour on your own, and I really remember the last hour long show that I did, I did a run at the Soho Theatre and it was connected to my book. And I sort of go on and read a bit from the book and talk about love and stuff. I really remember that dressing room. I remember just looking in the mirror and being on my own and you can hear the audience coming in, you you know, this feeling, you can hear your music over the speakers, which is so familiar that I then can't ever listen to it again because it's like it reminds me of the show. (laughs) And um, you're sort of going to the toilet and going, ah, I've got to go on and do this. And I just think sometimes I really miss that thing of, I haven't done much theatre, you see. Since I graduated, I've only done... If you count Panto, I did a bit. I and I did, count yeah, Panto. yeah, and I did TIE, which still counts because although yes. I won't turn my nose up at theatre and education, I probably wouldn't want to be doing it at forty-two just because I've got kids and don't want to necessarily get into a freezing cold van at six in the morning. But I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, and it teaches you a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you count that, I did a bit early on when I first graduated, but then nothing for years until I did a show at Southwark Playhouse twenty thirteen, I think. And I was back in a dressing room with people and I was like, oh, my God, someone's brought their dog in and someone's eating a really smelly salad and other people are getting annoyed. And and then in some ways I yearned for the simplicity of it just being me and yes, me being in complete control. Yes. But mostly it was lovely. Yeah. It's um, more hectic, isn't it, when you're with people? It is. But also I find even if I'm playing the lead in the thing, I find it so relaxing because I... I've never thought of, even if I'm playing the major character, of a play ever being that, unless it's a monologue, that it's all about the ensemble. And so I can play as big a role as you like and as big a theatre as you like, but I never feel the nerves of carrying anything because yeah, I'm with all these other people. If they don't yeah. do that, then I can't do this. And if I don't do that properly, they can't do that. The story won't get told. Yeah, it's a structure, isn't it? It's like a house of cards. It- and it's collaboration, so it means that yeah, everybody's yeah. to blame. And everybody triumphs when it goes right. I remember talking to this artist, a guy called John Byrne. We were on a film set. He said, you guys are really lucky because you get to collaborate. And, you know, you think about it flippantly, like, well, yeah, because we do this all the time. It's only lockdown after lockdown. A lot of actors are going, God, it's so nice to be with other actors. I yeah. think formally were like fucking all these other actors getting my work. Oh my God, I know. You'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember someone coming up to me at an audition once who 
she was more of a writer, really, I suppose, than a stand-up, but she did comedy stuff. And she ran her hand down my arm and went, you have worked this year, haven't you? <laughs> I always really remember that. I, I hadn't. I'd gone for casting after casting and not got it. And it was like she knew. It was like she could she see could inside my it. soul. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yes, actually, I did a voiceover. Um, yeah. yeah, so you are collaborating. You're right. Yeah, um, lucky like that. When I did Panto, when I was 22, I had this sort of, brief fling with one of the ugly sisters who is this guy always used to wear baseball caps and it was so much fun because we were all living in this house together in Blackburn and with no no heating and we went to do the panto at a prison officer's ball and one of the prison officers sold me a heater for a fiver it was like honestly I look back and I think I almost feel like this kind of thing wouldn't happen now (laughs) but maybe it's just that I was 22 maybe that kind of thing happens when you're 22 but yeah I remember having this heater and there were like four of us sharing a room and me and the ugly sister had to like go into the toilet to snog and stuff I don't know what the conversation was in this prison office that you got round to the our flat's so cold we needed to nick a heater from one of the prisoners I think I immediately told him I was because we were in twos in the day doing shows in school then every night we met up and did Cinderella so we did three different venues a day two different shows and the get in and get out this is why I don't want to be doing it at 42 um but we did Cinderella and I think they'd all watched I mean I don't know why as well they got Cinderella for a prison officer's ball because there weren't any kids there but anyway I must have just been so desperate for a heater that we came up and <laughs> said god i've got to go back to this freezing cold house the heating had broken and the guy who owned this house in blackburn also ran a curry house and we rang him and said the heating's broken and he said i can't fix it now i'm just so busy but he brought us all around all this amazing curry and all these different types of breads as if we had enough curry would just you know be able to go to warm yourselves out yeah you know when you eat so much you just feel tired (laughs) that was his ploy yeah ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
What were you like at school? Like, if you fancied someone at school, were you confident about going up to them? Uh, no, I wasn't that guy. Um, I was shy. I was a shy kid. And so I had a lot of self-esteem issues and I couldn't imagine anybody fancying me. And then when I was about eight, two black girls came into the school and it was a, a Catholic school in Wilson Green and all the kids were Irish, all of them. And were they all white until they were all white, two yeah. black white. girls came? Okay. Two, two black girls came. There was one mixed uh, heritage guy. He was a bit troubled about that, actually. He, okay. he didn't really identify as black. So I was the only kid. And then they, these two black girls came, Laurel Bubb and Athenia Williams. And Athenia Williams' mum and my mum worked at McVitie's, the biscuit factory, which is why I'm obsessed to this day about biscuits. Oh, I love biscuits too. Oh, yeah. In fact, my American friends call me Professor Biscuits because I explained to them why we call them biscuits and they call them cookies, which I'm yeah, happy to explain it. Something. Yeah, but a, a biscuits in America means something. Really something different. entirely yeah. different. We would almost call them scones. Yeah, like they had biscuits and gravy. The first time someone told me that, I was like picturing a digestive biscuit with gravy. Exactly. I was like, what yeah. are you talking about? It's, and I think even the reality is even worse. It's like a, almost like a savoury scone. No, I mean, it sounds nice, but not. It's never going to be a biscuit, biscuit right? A biscuit. So, okay, so your mum and Herman worked together. So, where they, yeah, yeah, so the, there was a sort of familial connection there. And I think they came over once or twice. And she became my first girlfriend, I suppose. Certainly, first kiss I ever had. It's still memorable. Um, it has a very tragic code to this story, very tragic, because she died when we were very young. She was like 24. Oh, no. She got uh, cancer and died. Um, and we sort of had lost touch with them by that point. But those memories of the first love and also the tenderness of that first kiss, yeah. the innocence of that first kiss, will remain with me to this day. I think we were literally playing a game called Kiss Chase. Was oh, it know. just you two? <laughs> no, it was, <laughs> it was most of our year, I think, and half the school. I don't know oh, so I pictured you two in like your bedroom while your mum's oh, downstairs. No. and yeah, chasing yeah. each other. Yes. <laughs> but I have this wonderful memory of these girls coming into the school and me, me sort of stepping up. I suppose I felt like I should be. I don't know why. It felt like a sort of pressure. Um, but she was delightful. Really, really lovely. That was my first love, yeah. And did you kind of go out together or was it just... Oh, God, no, we were eight. We were eight. Oh, so it lasted however eight. long we were at school. And then um, I suppose I remember it because of what happened to her, but also partly because it was the first time that I'd felt myself to be a romantic figure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like I was a sort of observant and they were boys who were really good with the girls. You know, John O'Connell was always really great with the girls. He was a good-looking guy, could play football really well. He ran fast, you know. The only thing I could beat him in was I could run faster than him, I discovered. Oh, that's good. That's yeah, a good I discovered it by accident because I everybody had said he's the fastest runner in the school, so I just presumed that he must have been. Yeah. And then one day he said, oh, we'll race to the post box, and I beat him. And I was almost ashamed to beat him because he wasn't the fastest boy in the school, and I knew that he wasn't, but I... I should have just boasted about it, but I just felt like, so I sort of kept his secret. Isn't you know? it weird? I think I would have done the same. It's <laughs> so like it almost you'd feel guilty for destroying his legacy. Yes, even yes. Though it, But when you're young, things like that matter so much, don't they? Yeah, yeah that's who he is. That's his role. Yes. And if I destroy that role, then I... Then I've got to be the fastest kid in the school, man. All yeah. that pressure's going to come on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you ready to have <laughs> yeah, all the girls fancying you? And, yeah, fastest, no, exactly. Fastest kid in Jesus and Mary School convent in Wilson Green. Are you ready to step up? No. <laughs> I want anybody knowing about that. My first kiss was with 
a mixed race guy and he was the first non-white person I'd ever seen. Because I was going to say, because you grew yeah, up in where again? In Matlock, which it's, is a small town in sort of near Derby. That's right, famously so. Yeah, it's a very Matlock. beautiful place. And I hope there's more diversity there now. I think there is. But certainly in the 80s, it was a very small school. There were only 50 kids in the whole primary school. Oh, my God, you would have yeah. known everybody. Absolutely. Oh, God. And it was a nightmare because you'd go out and you'd, like, hold someone's hand at the fair or something. Then the dinner lady would see me and tell more. <laughs> and, oh, God, it was you couldn't get away with anything. But, yeah, this family came. Now, I was in the final year, so I was 10 and he was 8. Hmm. And um, their mum was black and their dad was white. And they moved to our school. They were lovely. And, actually, I still see his sister sometimes she lives in London um and he was just gorgeous like even at the age of 10 I was like this guy should be a model (laughs) um and um I wanted to kiss him but I didn't know how to do it so you know when you want I think this happens when you're little, doesn't yeah. it? Well, I just yeah. went up to him behind the canteen and I still, isn't it weird? I still remember doing it. And I think you remember things when you were very nervous or very yes. upset or yes. it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yes, I think they stick, yeah. Yeah. I knew I wanted to kiss him. But I didn't know how to do it. So I said, I love you. Do you love me? I don't know how I got him on his own behind the canteen, but right. I did. And he said, yes. And so it became this big deal that we were going to kiss. And the whole school found out that we were going to kiss on this certain day at break time and we went under this tree behind the canteen and the whole school watched. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Did you, do you do that now? You make announcements on Twitter that Absolutely, you... Absolutely, yeah, yes. I'm going to kiss Ellis. Come we've around. been together for 10 years, but, guys, it's a big deal now. We've had two kids. We don't get much time on our own. Everyone can... <laughs> At 7.30 by hook or by crook on the 15th yeah. of December, we're going to have a smog in our front window. We'll open the curtains. Enjoy yourselves. (laughs) I know someone who, they've split up now, actually. It's a couple who were swingers. It just reminded me of this. I don't know what I expected swingers to be because I'd never met one, knowingly. I met them and he worked in the industry. She was an actress. They were married. Um, They were just really cool and nice and fun. And then afterwards, my housemate was like, did you know? And I was like, what? Like, (laughs) I can't believe it. And then every time I met them, since then they were quite happy to talk about those sort of say oh god it's a nightmare people's photos they look so much nicer than they are this couple came around the other night and we were like how do we get away from them it was almost like the way people talk about dating and stuff because it's a whole but I just never would have guessed yes but I don't know you see I went after I got divorced in 2015 I lived with a friend of mine who, who I knew from drama school and um I won't say his name but he's got this very um He's got this very different way of dealing with life. He's basically a polygamist. But by that, I mean, everybody who he's involved with knows that he's involved with others. And I remember looking at his life and thinking, oh, there are people who are naturally polygamous and there are people who are naturally monogamous. I'm clearly naturally monogamous simply because I don't have the energy, the emotional energy to deal with more than one person. I find one person is a lot. Because you're thinking about, are they okay? Uh, Should I make the time to meet with them? Where are we going to go? How are they doing today? What was their work like today? I care about all these little things. I couldn't do that for more than one person. I don't think I've got the capacity. And I could see also emotionally that I don't have the capacity to be able to sort of love somebody fully, commit myself to them, and then love somebody else fully and commit myself to them, and then go back to maybe a third person. I don't know how people do it. I get that there are people who naturally are are drawn towards that. 
but I don't know how they do it. I know exactly what you mean. And I don't think it's just about sex. Like, I think it's no. really easy to think, oh, it's just because they're all really kinky. And possibly mm-hmm. it's like that at the beginning. But I imagine it's like any relationship when you see polygamists who've been together for like six or seven years with two other people or more. I think there's got to be some enduring thing. Yeah. I agree. I think being with one person is sometimes like being with multiple people anyway. Yes. Like people yeah. are so complex. It takes years. And I think really if you were with someone from the age of eight to the age of 80, you still wouldn't really know them. Yes. Um, I think that's really true. And I think it's about being interested as well, you know, in, in getting to know somebody as they grow and as they change. I think it's wonderful when we can be interested in people growing and changing. Obviously, sometimes it happens so much more differently than you think and then you grow apart. But actually, I think it's having an interest in in somebody else's changes and how they mature that can keep me going. I think I am interested in that. I mean, I know I'm a divorced man, but I don't not like marriage because of that it just so yeah. happened that I was in work but it was 21 years and I didn't feel miserable for those 21 years I felt like gosh I'm really getting to know this person and they're getting to know me and there's such a great shorthand how would you especially afterwards how would you reproduce that because that I took know. 20 years you know yeah I how know. do you reproduce that in another but other people are content with I know you a bit And I know this other person a bit, and I know this other person a bit, and I feel better that way rather than being fully known by somebody. I wonder if that's it. You know, you were sort of saying about the amount of energy it takes to be with one person. Maybe if you're a polygamist, you don't just have this endless energy. You give less to each person that you're with. So maybe you don't go quite as deep with each relationship. But I mean, I also think it really requires everyone to be on the same page and to... I find it really intriguing, polygamy. And there's a Louis Theroux, I love Louis Theroux anyway, but he's done a really great episode on where he meets lots of different polygamists. And I think everyone who's watching who isn't a polygamist, which I guess is the vast majority of any population, is going, how does it work? I think in that one, there's a guy and he has this wife and then he has another girlfriend who also has a husband, but the husband isn't a polygamist. So the second woman's husband just lets her go and sleep in the room with this other man maybe two or three nights a week. And I'm very interested in the partners. Yeah. I automatically thought to myself, why doesn't he just do it if she is? But that's not what people do, is it? They don't go tit for tat. He doesn't want to do it. Because he's a monogamist and it suits him to be a monogamist. He can't think of anybody else he wants to be with. And so in order to keep her in his life, he has to give her this... This thing, and I know that some people find that an energy that actually it's a good energy in a marriage. It makes it more precious for them. Yeah, and I have no judgment about it. And I have known combinations where everybody's into it except one partner. Yeah, that's the thing that you'd write about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's the drama. That's the drama, and that's us in a way. Yes, I'd feel like that in that situation. She copes with it through her love, I suppose, of him and wanting to be with that particular person, and because he's not lying to her. She knows all the people that he's with, I suppose, that she finds a satisfaction in that. Well, maybe that's better than people just having affairs and you not knowing about it. There's a kind of element of control to you knowing about it, even if... Yeah, by far. Maybe if you love someone so much, you just say, this is the price I pay. I've never thought of people as monogamous or polygamous. Maybe it's something that you can't necessarily help. Yeah, I think so. With him, I don't think it's just kinky. I think it is... 
it's the best way for him to, he, he was with one person for many, many years and had children with him. But I think for him, it was just the more satisfying way of being and the more honest as far as he was concerned. But do you think for some people, it's a way of not really being vulnerable? It's a way of keeping people at arm's length. Yeah, you can't help but think that. I mean, I'm loath to judge anybody, I'm, I really am, but there might be some truth in there. I mean, some people in monogamous relationships try and keep people at arm's length anyway, don't they? You could be in a monogamous so, relationship and not know the other person at all. Because yeah, they're I agree. Most off, or they're lying, you know. It's a labyrinth. And it? also people convince themselves they're not lying. What I find, I went out with this guy for quite a while in my 20s and his work always came first in a very, very kind of concrete way. Like, it was like I was in a box of girlfriend and he could see me a couple of nights a week and he didn't really want any more than that. Yeah. I've talked about this before, I think, but I find relationships endlessly fascinating to write about. And what I find fascinating is the person who's going, actually, I'm not as into this as the others. Oh, my God, we're going to have a foursome. Ah, what do I do? I actually want to go and knit, you know, um, <laughs> which would probably be me in that situation. Um, but I find that fascinating because of the kind of tension it creates. And I suppose with this guy, I was always working to get him to give me more. But in the end, I thought actually, we're just not right for each other. There isn't going to be this moment where he goes, okay, I'll see you three nights a week and then I'll be happy. You know, it was just yeah. that we weren't quite right for each other. Yeah. And what I find interesting looking back is that he he was totally fine with me being in a kind of Tuesday night and Friday night box in the same way as you might play footy with your mates on a Wednesday and go for a run every Saturday. Like that mm. was the way it was. Whereas I think for other people... The relationship, it affects everything in their lives. What do we think then overall, what is love and how do we get our blueprint for it? So I wonder if sometimes my blueprint is a bit Hollywood in that I used to think of it as being there's one person for everybody, like you had to find the love of your life. And of course, I'm now cynical and a bit older and think, no, you can love a lot of people. There are a lot of combinations of personality and character that you could love. But the idea of love is, to me, always the end game. Like my male friends, in particular my male friends, would laugh at my idea, which would always be, if I'm ever going to be with anybody, and it, they've always been, apart from one time, friends who I've known for many, many years, and it's just fallen into that category of, of intimate, that it would always be like, oh, I want to be with this person, but I can't just go, I'm going to be with them for as long as this is nice. There's always marriage. And I know, I'm, I'm slightly, I say it, and you can see I'm slightly embarrassed but saying it, but it is true. I find it really difficult to want to be with anybody who I think this is a short-term thing. I just don't, yeah. my head doesn't work like that. But then it's bad because then everybody's like judged the ultimate, I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life. Is this right? Is um, it more that I don't want to be with you just for today? I want to be with you tomorrow as well. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily be the pressure of I'm going to be with you for the rest of your life. And maybe the way that people word it is by saying, I'm going to get married to you and have kids. We're going to grow old together. But what they really mean is, I like you so much. I want to see you from tomorrow onwards. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> That's so vague. That's such a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be so sane. But I suppose it's the, also the way we've constructed society that it that doesn't feel like a thing you can say to somebody. Well, it's certainly... I mean, if someone said that to me, that wouldn't feel like a good thing to hear. No, it wouldn't. It would be, it'd be hedging. Actually, it would be... hedging a little bit when they say it. Tomorrow <laughs> on, would you be like, OK, well, what about in a year? Do you what see us they? together? What? 
Are they looking at exits when they're saying this? It's really really kind of like like business talk, isn't it? But that is what I think, because you can't know how you'll change. You can't know how they'll change. You two are a unique combination. When two people are together, or more than two people, it's a unique combination. It's like an experiment where you mix one type of bacteria with another that have never been mixed together before, and you have to see what happens. But that's scary. I think one's blueprint for love is probably affected by one's environment when one was a child much more than we think so um, parents, yeah to parents maybe in ways that are unusual I think I, my parents were together until my dad died so I had a happy you know very cohesive childhood I didn't even really see them argue very much and they were very funny together they were like a double act hmm. so I think that probably influenced me as well but then I've got friends who had quite difficult upbringings with parents who were divorced friends who had like mental illness in their families had to do a lot of caring at a young age and then they're in very healthy relationships now and have almost tried to look for something that perhaps was absent in their childhood so it's interesting isn't it yes yes, yeah but you're right we're still being affected by that initial encounter with yes even if you're railing against it because however much my parents especially towards the end argued they divorced when I was 18 it's a very very long time ago but I do remember them playing. I remember them playing with each other and play wrestling with each other and having fun together. Sometimes those memories seem a bit incongruous. And I, I suppose they are memories because they were quite rare. <laughs> They're very strong memories. And playfulness is everything. Yeah. If I'm not laughing with the partner, I know it's doomed. Once I, the laughter stops, I know. Absolutely. That- but I think that's very astute. And I think some people, well, if you're looking for it, it's important for you. There are people for whom humour is less important. Yeah. But I think for me and you and for most of my friends, if not all, humour plays a massive part. And I agree, but I think it's really hard to see sometimes. I think you can be with the wrong person because you can be really attracted to them. They can, You can have a lot of similarities and a lot of things that complement each other. Mm. And humour can be absent, but it can take real time for kind of the dust to settle and for you to go, oh shit, actually, for me, it's if they don't find me funny, actually. Because I'm like, guys, what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's the <death laughs> no, now, okay. <laughs> if they can't really make them laugh and if they, yeah, they can't, can't really make get- me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. They can't get you. Yeah. If they can't make you laugh, certainly. That's the big one. But also, if they don't make you laugh, I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody telling a joke that you're politely wanting to encourage them for, with, but you, it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It sort yeah. of hurts. And I wouldn't want to live with somebody who I'm doing that with all the time. Oh, yes. Yeah, so Tell me that anecdote again. I just feel like, who's, who am I living with? I know. Well, then it's almost like they're an old auntie who you've got to be nice to. It's like, what am I doing <laughs> to the person I'm living with? I should be, you know, like, I shouldn't be polite and going, oh, yeah, great. I used to hate that thing of being in a group and, you know, when someone starts to tell an anecdote and, you know, maybe I've been this person for other people and been like, oh, God, she's telling that anecdote again. How do I? <laughs> but, you know, when you're with someone and they start telling an anecdote and you've heard it before and you're like, oh, God, it's going to take like five minutes and it's sort of the same as the joke thing. Somebody once said this to me and I have found it true and helpful sometimes. And I did notice it actually through a lot of relationships that, that often, uh, especially if they're talking about a childhood incident, my partners have talked about things and I've gone in my head I've gone I do know this story but let me listen to it again and then somebody once said to me maybe what I was doing was doing this thing which is 
understanding that every time somebody tells a story, even if it's an old story, they always add a little something. So and sometimes it's an embellishment that's just they've made that bit up or they've seen it. But oftentimes it's like they're looking at everything from a different angle, like they put the camera in a different place. Oh, what I didn't tell you the last time was when I went to get that cherry from the tree, there was a black cat sitting there yeah, and it yeah. walked off. And that's a sign of un, you know, it being unlucky. You've never mentioned that detail before. So sometimes, not always, but sometimes when people retell a story, it's worth listening to because they've slightly had a different bit of detail. That's it did help such me. good advice, isn't it? Yeah. And if you can do that, some people couldn't do it. Do it. Yeah. They wouldn't really listen hard enough. But if you can, and I think you can, that's a gift, really. Even something they miss out says something, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Who else was there? Oh, my mum was there. You never said your mum was there. Yeah, she yeah. was there, standing there the whole time. As I've got older, what I've wanted from a relationship has changed. And now I really think to me, love is kindness. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was my big revelation in uh, about five years ago. It's, yeah. it's everything. Kindness is absolutely everything. And it's a real energy as well, have you noticed? Yeah. But if I've yeah. been trying to be kind, especially if I've gone, oh, I'm trying to be kind to myself because I've noticed I've been saying stuff <laughs> in my head about myself. And about yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. And I swap that. My attitudes to everybody around me changes. Yes, because you, I know exactly what you mean. I've been reading this book about compassion and I'm much more compassionate to myself now. I didn't really understand what it meant before. I used to think it was a bit of a word, I suppose, like shame is a word I didn't really understand either. You know, when you sort of just dismiss them as, and um, I read this really great book about compassion that my friend told me to read. And uh, it's kind of changed everything. And especially with this year having been so odd and hard, I think there are times that you can get into a, a habit of chastising yourself without realising it. And you sort of be like, oh, I can't believe you're doing that again. I can't. And then now I really pick myself up on it. And I'm like, be really nice to yourself. Yes. And the book's called The Compassionate Mind. And I agree. I think then it transfers to everything around you. And actually you see, it's a bit like gratitude, isn't it? And all these things that they're actually quite hard to do. Yes. They're quite hard to sustain. Yeah, they are. They are hard to sustain. When I um, I started, I tried to sort of properly practice uh, kindness a couple of months ago. I was really going out of my way, even tweeting about it. And I remember telling my son, being cynic at 17, I said, so, you know, I'm just trying to do this thing and, you know, trying to be kind to myself. And actually it's made me treat people better. And he went, right, Dad, don't want to be there when the pendulum swings the other way. (laughs) cheeky bastard but sure enough there was a day it was about two weeks ago where I got absolute rage at somebody on the road I mean I didn't get up and beat anybody up obviously but it was that attitude and that monster yeah yeah as I was driving back I thought the pendulum has swung yeah but then what would the compassionate side of you say you have to forgive yourself don't you (laughs) well if he hadn't cut me up then I wouldn't have (laughs) He had not been indicating turning left and then went straight. Exactly. It's, I was being compassionate, actually, by not beating him up. <laughs> but this is the other thing somebody said, this is months ago, I may have read it, and it really made me feel slightly guilty, but I'm trying to work on it, which is why don't you treat yourself like you would an eight-year-old in your care? Uh-huh. Jesus, I mean, the things, literally, the things I say. Even if it's just in passing, oh, you're Burke, you just, what a stupid thing you've done why do you always do that? You know, I know. And I'd never do that to an eight-year-old. I wouldn't dream of it. No, with the thing of absolutely, the thing of always doing something, I think, is really it's like you've done that again. Why yeah. are you worrying about that again? What you know? And yeah. actually, it, it is damaging. 
Well, mm. it may not be damaging, actually. I think what it does is perpetuate the thing. Yes. It may not be damaging, but it's, it's really certainly unhelpful, tedious though. and unhelpful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. In terms of, we talk about love, then what, what do you think, though, is the difference between what movies and television, which is, let's face it, where we learn most of our stuff about life, says about love and what love is? And what we found out in life. If you, has there been a big dichotomy? If you kind of go, oh, blimey, I used to think love was this, but I've realised it's... I think I've seen things in films that have really helped me. I think I've seen things that I don't want to be in mm. relationships. And I've seen moments that I do, but I don't think I've ever seen a film where I've been like, this is exactly how I want my relationship to be and how I would want it to turn out and everything. Because on movies, because it has to tie everything up, it often ends with a wedding or a breakup, doesn't it? It's trying to do the whole world of the relationship in two and a half hours. Whereas actually, the minutiae of it, I'm more interested in and there are the moments, yeah. Yeah. I was watching, um, just because of my son, we watch a lot of comedies, it's what kind of our go-to, that and PS4 games. We were watching New Girl, only because he said, I mean, I read it like, I don't want to this for years it doesn't look like my kind of comedy please don't make me but he was watching I was like let me just watch it with him and I kind of got into it and then don't know if you've ever seen it but there's two main characters and they get together quite early on and it was weird because I thought wow they could have strung this out for another series probably yeah but they've got them together Nick and Jess are together main girl and one of the main guys and then I thought, oh, it's going to be amazing because if they keep this going, because they clearly love each other, I invested in it, obviously. And I, they really love each of other. Course, yeah. Yeah. And then I think, because all these other sitcoms, they're sleeping with multiple partners every week. As I said to my son the other day, you know, the guys on Friends must just be rife with venereal disease because <laughs> there's so many people that they've been with. But this, I thought they're going to do this really brave thing and they're going to have yeah. this couple live their life like how you would in your early 30s when you find somebody yeah. and you're moving towards how we're going to have a life together they're going to do that difficult thing in a sitcom but of course they split them up again yeah, why did they split them up it's because they probably thought there'd be more legs in it you could have more partners coming in i've dutifully kept on watching i don't know maybe i'm on this last season now but i've been disappointed for about three seasons that they hadn't done the thing because they've shied away from the realities, which would be funny. But as then well. the problem is, is there enough drama in it? It'd be interesting. We, well, yeah, because there's a drama of shall we move in together? Yeah. But are the stakes high enough? You could do so many different things. You could have them together. You could have a couple together for three series with a kind of tension underneath and the audience doesn't know why. And then you have all the stuff about shall we move in together? What colour shall we paint the walls? Blah, blah, blah. And then you have this reveal that one of them's a polygamist or something. So there are lots of different ways to do it, aren't you? You don't have to literally split them up and get them back together. But I know what you mean. It is the brave thing to do. But then I always think there must be a reason that it's not normally done. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But if you've been disappointed, then you obviously... I've been dis- I'm yeah. a disappointed viewer. Yeah, yeah, I'm a disappointed viewer. If you're listening, producers of New Girl, need to get them <laughs> back together and <laughs> keep them together. And mm. thank you. This has honestly been one of my favourites. Thank you for being so open and funny and I hope you've enjoyed it. Of course I have. Good. Um, all right, we'll finish on the song then. I've changed one of the questions and you'll know which one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Far away, musically. <laughs> the things we do for love. The things we do for love. This week I was joined by... Addison Joseph. His favourite mm. biscuit is... Digestives. 
Oh, really? Just plain digestives? They cannot be plain digestives. No other biscuit dunks like a digestive biscuit. Okay, but it's got to be dunked then, is it? It's, it's a dunker. It's got okay, to be dunked. Yeah, yeah, dry biscuits. Who wants to eat a dry biscuit? Well, my um, granddad used to have digestives with butter and cheese. Oh, butter I've had, yes. Yeah, this kind of sweet and sour type thing. By the way, in those big boxes you get off different crackers, when they put digestives or sweet biscuits in there, I take them out immediately. Ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, that's a travesty, isn't it? Shouldn't be done. Um, his favourite mm. item of stationery is pen and a notebook man okay. good pen and notebook can't beat them do you like it when a notebook's new when you open yes. it like, yeah me too okay well if I ever get you a present I'll know to get you a digestive biscuit and a notebook yeah a decent pen yeah yeah okay a pen yeah not just a big biro no no, no. no. it's got a bit of chunk to it I've got yeah. big fingers the things we do for love Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> I, don't know why I, sang that. I, sang I love that. it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. That was me, Izzy Sutty, chatting to Patterson Joseph about the things we did and do and continue to do for love. When we asked Patterson if there was anything he wanted to plug, he said, I mean, he's got loads of stuff coming out all the time, but he said, I just enjoyed the rambling chin wag, so I'm good with just letting that do the work so am I and he's also said guess if folks are curious they can google stuff can't they I mean that is so true if you are curious please do google him because he is such a versatile actor and I saw him in something called safe house recently when I'd had my first jab and I lay in bed for two days and didn't do any childcare. I watched Safe House and he was just so brilliant in it and so different from anything that I'd seen him do. He really is such a good, varied actor and a really, really great guy in such good company. Um, So thank you for listening. Please, if you enjoyed the show, if you're enjoying it, tell people, review, subscribe. And my own book, Jane is Trying, is out now depending on when this goes out we think this will go out around the 22nd of july which is the release date i liked writing it it was hard at times i ate lots of cake it took me four years i'm pleased with it and i'd love you to buy it it's about a woman who discovers that her fiance has been cheating on her they're trying for a baby and her life kind of falls apart and she moves back to her hometown in the midlands which is not matlock where I'm from which I normally write about it's a fictional place called Foley that's very much like Matlock Um, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon The Things We Do For Love was hosted by me Izzy Sutty and featured my guest Patterson Joseph the theme music is by Charlie Jefferson The Things We Do For Love is produced by Ben Walker for Fuzz Productions and the internet Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.